From the book of Acts. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all the people, and everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Peter and the other, said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all, all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who were accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their numbers that day. Good morning. Many of you know that uh, my wife, Brittany, is due with our second baby today. So if she gets up during the middle of the service, if just a couple of you could maybe go with her, I'll finish up here. Um, and then, just kidding. I would, I would never, no woman at this church would ever look me in the eyes again if I did that. So I don't think it's a very good idea, for other reasons too. But uh, looking this morning at the first Christian sermon, starts with the, the words, no, we're not drunk, pretty inauspicious beginning, but it ends well, 3,000 people that day, say we're in. 3,000 people say, sign us up. We want to be a part of it. This is for us. That day. And that's the beginning of, it's not a one-off event, it's a beginning of a, a chain reaction. The same thing happens from this point on all over Palestine first, then all over Asia Minor, then all over Southern Europe. Same thing you see here. guy stands up and says, here's what happened, here's what you need, here's what you should do about it. And dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people say, all right, we're in. We want, we want in. Why? Why did this grip people in this way? You see the answer there on, on your program. It's toward the bottom. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And that's the phrase that I want to spend our whole time focusing on this morning, this phrase, cut to the heart. When the people heard this message... They were cut to the heart. I want to figure out what that means. 
we're in this long series of messages called The Whole Story, talking about God's story in the Bible from beginning to end, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And as of this week, the series has officially stalled. We are no longer making progress. We are stuck, stopped at a point that I just can't get past. I can't stop thinking about this idea of, okay, you've heard the truth of the gospel. We've talked about it for the last seven weeks. You've heard the Christian story, but when does it become personal? When does it become something that filters into your life? So there's more to be said about the story. There's more to be said about God's acts of restoration, but we're stuck. We're actually looking this morning at the exact same theme that we looked at two weeks ago, which is experiencing the truth. You've heard the truth. What does it mean to experience it? We're going to go over the exact same ideas again from a slightly different perspective. So just two questions I want to ask this morning with regard to this phrase, cut to the heart. First, how do you get cut to the heart? And second, why is on earth is this a good thing? Why is it a good thing to be cut to the heart? First, how do you get cut to the heart? And second, why is it a good thing? Before we get into it, let's pray. Father, as we look this morning at the proclamation of your good news for the first time and the way that it affected the people that heard it at this first preaching. God, I pray that you would do the same thing in us. I pray that you would cut us to the heart this morning. I pray that just as your spirit took these words and impressed them upon those listeners, that you would do the same thing to us, that you, like only you can, would show us the truth of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So first, how do you get cut to the heart? It happens in two phases. First, you realize that the Christian story is true in general. It's generally true. Not, not generally true and, par- and like partially true, but true in general, true kind of across the board. And then second, you realize that the Christian story is true of you. That it's your story too. So, so first, realizing that it's true in general. Take a look on the back of your program. At this paragraph in the middle, starting with fellow Israelites. Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And then skipping down a few lines after the ellipses, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He says this man was accredited to you by God. He says, as you yourselves know, he says, we are all witnesses of it. What's he saying? saying think stop for just a second and think think about what's happened we all know that things have been crazy we all know emotions have been running high but for a second just stop and separate yourself from the crowd and think about what everybody knows has happened because we we all know for sure the one thing we know is that the crowd can't be trusted because one week the crowd is shouting Hosanna, praising this man Jesus, and the next week they're shouting crucify him. The crowd is driven by instincts. The crowd is driven by emotions. The crowd doesn't know what to think. And he's saying, for once in your life, step away from the crowd and think. Examine the evidence. Examine the public record of what's taken place. Think about this. This has been happening in front of everyone to see. Don't just feel, but actually examine what's been going on. And this approach, this type of um, appealing to the reasons for Christianity is, is very characteristic of all the early Christian apostles. And it's the first cut. It's the first way that somebody gets cut by the Christian message. It's surface cut. 
this idea that, well, wait, wait a minute. I thought Christianity was this primitive religion. I thought it was something my parents wanted me to, you know, carry on. I thought it was a cultural tradition. I thought it was a source of kind of moral teachings. Wait a minute. There might actually be reasons for this. This might actually be true. Paul says, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he talks about, we all know that, that Jesus appeared to a crowd as large as 500 people at once after he was resurrected. Or another instance, when he's before King Agrippa in Acts 26, he's presenting the gospel message, and the, the king and his court kind of start mocking him a little bit. And Paul doesn't say, well, you know, just, just believe it, then you'll know. Just receive it, then you'll understand. He says, no, what I am saying is true and reasonable. You yourselves know these things. They weren't done in a corner. And King Agrippa says, well, do you, do you expect me to be persuaded to be a Christian in such a short time? In other words, well, you got me there. I mean, I do have to admit at least that much. They're always leading with this. They're not saying, you know, well, you just got to feel it. They're not saying, well, we can't just really explain it. They're saying this Jesus was raised from the dead, and we are witnesses. We are witnesses. They would not lead with this unless it was their trump card. They would not build everything on this unless it was a sure foundation. The first way that the crowd is cut by Peter's message is by the general truth of the Christian story. We're, We're listening so far. Okay, you're right. These things did happen. You're right. We can't deny the general truth of that. But that's, that's not being cut to the heart. It's just the first step. That's just a, a surface cut. For the blade to, to go all the way to the heart is something very different. That's when someone comes to the realization that not only is the Christian story true in general, but the Christian story is true of me. It's true specifically of me. It's my story that's being told. And we'll, we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning here, here in this section. So take your program again and look, picking up where we left off. Peter said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's what pushed them over the the edge. That's the line, that's the idea that pushed them over the edge. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified has now been made Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. This Jesus whom you crucified. Many of you may know that that line, that particular line, this Jesus whom you crucified, is among the most infamous lines in the whole Bible. Peter's speaking to a mostly Jewish audience. This line has been used through the centuries. Well, there you have it. The Jews killed Jesus. It's been used as a premise for anti-Semitism. Gross misinterpretation of what is being said. Peter is not saying the Jews killed Jesus. He knows his audience. He's not, he cannot be saying that. Why? Because as we talked about last week, this day that the message is being preached, Pentecost, it's a, it's a big Jewish holiday. There are people from all over the world, the known world at that time, who have converged on Jerusalem. That's why the message was spoken in all these different languages, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So most of the people that were there weren't even in Jerusalem 50 days earlier when Jesus was, was put to death. And even the people that were there, they didn't play an active role, of course. I mean, they were passive bystanders. So what is, what is Peter really saying? 
what is he really trying to get at? He means exactly what he says, which is this Jesus whom you crucified, you, every one of you, you individually. And what has been true for 2,000 years is that when the Holy Spirit cuts you to the heart with the truth of the Christian gospel, you know that it's not true of them, it's true of you. It's not true of them, it's true of you. And you say, okay, I think I'm just about to lose you because it kind of sounds like what you're suggesting is that somehow um, responsibility, culpability, guilt for the crucifixion of Jesus, um, whom I have nothing to do with, can somehow be laid at my feet, which is patently outrageous and absurd. You know, that, that can't be what you're suggesting, right? Of course, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. That's the core of the Christian message. That's what it means to be a Christian, to realize that and to admit that. So I want to just slow things down and see if we can make this claim, this idea, any less outrageous and crazy. And I think the best place to start in on that, to get at it, is actually from Peter's perspective himself, the guy that's doing the preaching. Uh, so let me read you something from Luke chapter 22. This is from the the last hours of Jesus' life. Then seizing Jesus, this is the, the temple guard, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Another gospel records that this last denial was profanity-laced. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And if you try to get inside Peter's head from that point forward, his internal logic seems to be, did I put Jesus on the cross physically? Did I you know, drive the nails into his hands? Did I put a crown of thorns on his head? Did I do any of those things? No, but I, I might as well have. I mean, what, what really is the difference? What really is the difference? Did I sell him out like Judas did? No, but I might as well have. What really is the difference? And then the, the appeal to the crowd is, you know, he's only able to say this with such conviction, this Jesus whom you crucified such conviction, but also compassion. You know, for some reason they don't rise up and, and try to stone him. He's only able to say it with such conviction, but also compassion, because he's already come to this realization himself, this Jesus whom I crucified. This Jesus whose death is my responsibility just as much as, as anybody else's. And you say, well, okay, I mean, I, I get that. That's kind of, you know, poignant for Peter. I get that. Um, and not to be insensitive, but still, I still don't exactly see how that relates to me. You know, I mean, so he denied Jesus. I, you know, he, he feels responsible. He's now trying to, to pin his guilt on everybody else. I mean, what is this? I don't really get it. But, but the question is, well, do you think you would have done something different? Do you think you would have done something different in his position? 
you think you would have been a hero? I mean, what, what, really, what do you think you would have done? And that's been our, our theme all throughout as we've been doing this whole story series is that the Bible is it's a story. It's not an instruction manual. And as a story, it's basically completely worthless unless you can see yourself in each of these instances. Unless you understand, oh, wait a minute, this is about me. This story is about me. So as we've been looking at Adam and Eve, and at the very beginning, looking at this, these, in this rebellion against God, this choosing to turn their back on God, we never said them. We never acted like it was some random couple that was making these choices. We always said us. We always said us because we knew we'd do the exact same thing. We knew we would do the exact same thing given the chance. And if you, if you don't see that yet, if it's like, well, no, you know, I, I might have done the right thing. You know, maybe I would have just been morally strong. Maybe I would have just made a good choice. Well, okay, come back in a few years. We can have this conversation again. But if you see that, if you, if you understand that it's you too, then we can push this point about responsibility for the death of Christ a bit further because if, if it's you with Adam and Eve, not just you with Peter, if it was you making this initial choice to turn against God, if it was you making this initial rebellion against God to begin with, then not only is it the case that you're responsible responsible for the death of Christ in the sense of, like Peter, you kind of, you know, um, disowned him or weren't there for him when he needed you. But also the, the whole point of Jesus coming to begin with, the whole reason he's on the cross is because of mankind's sin. And so there's this deeper, more profound second sense in which responsibility for the death of Christ extends to each of us, not only in the sense of, well, we all would have denied him like Peter did, but in the sense that, well, why is he there to begin with? Why is he suffering to begin with? What's the whole point of the cross to begin with? It's paying for mankind's sin. It's bridging this path back to God, and everybody's equally responsible for that. John Newton, who we've mentioned before on on Sunday mornings, we'll probably mention again, uh, 18th century English slave trader who became a Christian and um, became a, a pastor, actually, and then one of the uh, leaders of the abolition movement in, in Great Britain. Most best remembered today for uh, being a writer of hymns. His most famous hymn begins with the line, you might have heard it, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you've been around here, you know we talk all the time about how this sense of um, wretchedness, this realization that you yourself are a wretch is prerequisite to understanding how amazing grace is. You don't understand how great God's grace is, God's love is, until you understand how much you need it. John Newton couldn't write this song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. He couldn't write the first part of that line until he had already realized the second part. It saved a wretch like me. You say, well, it's easy for John Newton to realize he was a wretch. He was in the slave trade. I mean, how much more wretched does it get? And yeah, I think there's some some truth to that. I mean, I get that point. But I, I think that you might be surprised if you actually asked John Newton, why are you a wretch? You know, what is the, what's the locale of your wretchedness? Where is it located? What's the most wretched thing you've done? One of his lesser known hymns that I want to read to you from now is um, called, I Saw One Hanging on a Tree. I'll just read a couple stanzas. He says, my conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. 
Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. It's the worst thing he did, not the slave trade. Worst thing he did, same worst thing that I've done, same worst thing that you've done. Another quick example, a little bit closer to home. Becky Pippert is this um, American evangelist, and she has this this pretty moving story. I won't relay the whole thing, but just kind of the outline of it that she's told for a number of years now about it. Um, she was speaking at some conference, and afterwards this young woman comes up to her sobbing and can't trying to talk, can't even get the words out, so she pulls her aside, and they sit down, and finally she she shares her story, which is, is basically... Ten years prior, her, she and her husband were engaged at that time, not yet married. They were um, leaders at their church, kind of seen as the perfect Christian couple. She became pregnant. This would have kind of ruined everything um, in terms of how she was perceived. So they decided to abort the pregnancy. And for, for ten years following that, just completely racked with guilt. Let me read you in her own words what she said. My wedding day, I can safely say, was the worst day of my life. I walked down the aisle. Everybody was looking at us, thinking how wonderful we were. Do you know what I thought to myself? I thought, you're a murderer. They think you're wonderful, but you know what you've done. You've taken a life because you couldn't bear humiliation. That was ten years ago. I know that God forgives. I know that he loves. I can't deal with the guilt. I'm paralyzed by what I've done. And the thing that keeps coming to me is, how could you have ever taken an innocent life? How are you capable of taking an innocent life? And Becky Pippert, in response, says something that, you know, I, I probably would have never been bold enough to say. Um, something that you kind of would never think to say on your own has to be inspired by God's Spirit. says, well, this isn't the first time you've done this. This isn't like this hasn't happened before. This taking of an innocent life, you've already done this before. This isn't the worst thing you've done. This abortion is not the worst thing you've done. And that has been the Christian gospel from the beginning. The worst thing that woman has done, the worst thing John Newton has done, the worst thing you've done, the worst thing I've done, the worst thing Peter did, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. Some of you have done some some pretty quote-unquote bad stuff. Some of you have not. It doesn't really matter. You know, one of the things that's um, really confusing and upsetting to people when they first start hanging around Christians is the way that Christians have this maddening tendency to make a really big deal out of really small sins, you know, thoughts and motives and um, words. But then really big sins, like murder, it's like, well, you know, I've seen worse. You know, it's murder. I mean, and people, they, they're like, the Christians are crazy. This doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. You know, what, how does this connect? But it makes sense in light of the cross. It makes sense in light of the cross because what does that small sin represent? represents culpability for the death of Christ. Pretty big deal. Becomes a pretty big deal in that light. What does that big sin represent? Well, it's pretty small in light of what it represents. It represents culpability for the death of Christ. Same thing for everybody. We're all members of this same club, the people that killed Jesus. Martin Luther, the great reformer, his line was, we all carry his nails around with us in our pockets. We're all members of that same club. Being a Christian just means being a card-carrying member. It means owning it. It means admitting it. It means saying, yeah, this is me. It means when you hear that line, this Jesus whom you crucified, you know it's true of you. You're cut to the heart. The blade goes all the way in. You're cut to the heart. You know it's true of you. You know that you're the one that did it. 
and what I want to turn to now, that's the, that's the bulk of what we want to talk about, but what I want to turn to now in the time we have left is, okay, now, now why would that be a good thing? You know, why, why is this something? I mean, you're almost talking about it like something I should want to be cut to the heart. You know, like it's a good thing to, to have this knowledge. Why is this, why is this a positive because it sounds like just something that would crush you. I mean, even going back to that example with the, the woman, the young woman and the abortion, it's like, what is she trying to do? Put one more thing on? Make it that much worse? I don't understand. It seems like it's just additional guilt. It's just going to weigh you down that much more. This is what I always suspected. This is why I always suspected that religious people, Christians, are just people that walk around with that much more guilt on their shoulders. Why would I want to be cut to the heart with this knowledge that I am responsible for the death of Christ? I think it's a very important question. I'll answer it as straightforwardly as I know how, which is just to say that it is not until you see the cross for what it really is, which is something that you played a part in making happen, that you're able to see it in you know, its full meaning and, and all of the different dimensions of it. And one of those additional dimensions is not only that you're responsible for putting Christ there, but when you see your role, when you see the role that you played, when you see your responsibility, your culpability, it's only then that you are then also able to see at the same time the paradox of the cross, which is the worst thing I've ever done, which is put him there, which is take the only innocent life that ever lived. The worst thing I've ever done is at the same time, is at the same time as I look at it, proof of something else. It's not only proof of how bad I am. It's proof at the same time, at the same moment as a paradox of how strong God's love is for you. It's not just proof of how terribly sinful I am. It's proof of how terribly strong God's love is for you. Because the message of Scripture, from beginning to end, we've spent many weeks looking at it now in the past couple months, is that in a mysterious way, they can never be fully understood. We can say some intelligent things about it. We'll never fully get it. But in some mysterious way, this death of Christ is forgiveness. It speaks forgiveness. It speaks forgiveness. So at the same time you see the worst thing you've done, you see at the same time the, the forgiveness of God for that and for everything else. So the point with, with that Becky Pippard and that woman is you've, for, you've been forgiven for the greater sin. You're going to be forgiven for the lesser as well. Let me read you. I, I just read you the first two stanzas before. Let me read you the final three stanzas of this same hymn by John Newton. He goes on to say, after, for I the Lord have slain, A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus, listen carefully here. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. It's a paradox. Pleasing grief, mournful joy, that I should live by this person that I killed. And no one understands the forgiveness until they understand their own guilt in it. You know, people have heard this idea of kind of a, uh, somehow the, the death of Jesus Christ means forgiveness for sins. They, they, they have that kind of basic piece of ideology in their mental hardware somewhere. But that doesn't grip anyone until they first understand, oh, wait a minute, I'm the one that did it. Wait a minute, I'm the one who's guilty for it. And when you know that first, when you see the role you played first, then all of a sudden this forgiveness can grip you in a very personal way. 
then all of a sudden the same thing that is the, the source of great sorrow can become at the same time a source of great comfort, a source of great assurance. Because if I did that, and yet he died to forgive it, and yet he welcomes me anyway, what else is, he's not going to hold anything against me. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But you have to feel the sorrow first. So that's why it's a good thing. Because no one, except those who have been cut to the heart, can understand and receive this forgiveness. Those that were cut to the heart, they say to, to Peter, what must we do? What, what should we do? And he, he gives them, it's very nice um, and encouraging, actually. He doesn't say, well, um, do, you know, can't do anything. This is just, just a mystery. Or just, just go think about it. You know, he gives them two very concrete things. He says, repent and be baptized. Repent and believe. Express faith. We'll actually spend a whole week talking about those two things, repent and be baptized, what it means to truly repent, what it means to be baptized um, in the next message in this series. But, but for now, repent and be baptized. So that's what you've got to do if you've got to the heart, repent. Well, prerequisite to repenting is sorrow. You have to have sorrow first. And I want to take just a second at the end here to talk about there, it has to be sorrow and not guilt. It has to be sorrow and not just kind of uh, beating yourself up. And there's really a big difference between the two. Religious, pe- religious people know guilt. You know, I've broken the rules and I feel guilty about it and shame and I'm a bad person. Broken this cold heart standard. Sorrow, godly sorrow, is when you realize you haven't just broken the rules, you've broken the Father's heart. You've broken a person. You've broken him. And you feel sorrow for that specifically. You feel sorrow for him, not just for yourself. It's easy to feel guilt and feel sorry for yourself for being bad. But when you're cut to the heart, you realize that you broke someone else. You realize that, you know, you did this to someone else. He was coming to save you. You killed him. It brings sorrow. There's an old famous legend. Um, actually, this, this legend appears in almost every ancient mythology. It's pretty interesting and, and unique that it keeps popping up. And I think it's because it speaks to something that's very deeply rooted in our hearts. Um, so, Bed-Gellert is this town in Wales which means um, grave of Gellert. And if you know the, the story, Gellert is the dog, and Llewellyn, the Prince of Wales, he's out on a hunting trip, he comes home, and uh, he goes to the bed of his, his infant son, and the, there's blood all over the sheets, and he looks at the dog, and the dog has blood all over his mouth. And so he takes his sword, stabs the dog through the heart, and then he goes into the next room, and there's the, the child laying unharmed, and a wolf is laying there dead. And, you know, emotions start to rise up. And we're talking about a dog. I mean, we're, it's just a dog. You know, and if you put this to, to Jesus, to God, to the God who loves you, the God who made you. I didn't know what he had done. I slayed the one who was trying to save me. There's this sorrow. And it's not guilt. It's so different than guilt. What makes it godly sorrow is that it's sorrow with hope. It's sorrow with hope for forgiveness and hope for change. There's a passage in... 2 Corinthians, where Paul actually kind of unpacks these concepts we're talking about this morning. He says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. That's what what Peter says you have to do if you want to be involved in this Christian movement, repent. He says, godly sorrow leads to repentance, but worldly sorrow leads to death. So two different types of sorrow, two very different paths. You want to make sure you got the right kind. Um, What's the difference? Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. Probably easiest to, to look at it, and again, in terms of examples, P- 
Peter we've already seen, and then you know the, the counterexample being Judas. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly, but is restored. Judas has betrayed Christ and ends up hanging himself. Worldly sorrow, this sorrow that's all inwardly focused, this sorrow without hope, this sorrow of what have I done, there's no hope for me, I'm such a terrible person, just forget it all. That's not going to lead to life. I mean, clearly, there's, there's no good end of that type of sorrow. And that's why there's such a misinterpretation, I think, of what Christianity is. It's that, well, what's the point in beating yourself up? The Christian message is very clear that there's no point to, to worldly sorrow, this sorrow without hope. But Peter, because he sees the cross, because he understands what the death and resurrection of Christ mean, is then, instead of lying in a field somewhere, is then restored in preaching this first sermon on the day of, of Pentecost. Godly sorrow with hope for forgiveness and for change. The two things that are promised to those who repent and are baptized, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit coming to actually change you and transform you versus worldly sorrow that ends in death. Two very different paths. It matters which one you go down. It, it has consequences. The decisions have consequences. It starts with being cut to the heart. It starts with being cut to the heart with this knowledge, yes, I'm the one who did it. And in that knowledge comes great comfort as well. So it's not an, not an easy subject to talk about. It's not an easy subject to think about. Sorrow isn't something that we normally run to embrace. But it's very clear, it's been clear since the beginning, that there's no Christianity outside of it. There's no embracing of this good news, embracing of this gospel, before first being cut by the sword of God's truth, by the sword of his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your kindness toward us and your compassion. We thank you that though we treated you as an enemy, you have embraced us not only as friends but as children. And God, we ask this morning that as we consider these truths, as we look to your plan for bringing us back into your family, God, I pray that you would overwhelm us with a sense of the power of your love and the strength of your forgiveness, that you would give us courage to to go through the necessary sorrow to enter into that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.